Hey, I uh, want to let you know that we uh, next week are coming to the end of our, our Vision Next campaign. Actually, it goes on for three years, but the, the, the initiation of our campaign comes to an end next Sunday, and we're calling it Celebration Sunday. Uh, in your program this morning is just a, a mountain of materials that you can read at your leisure, but uh, I want to draw your attention to our commitment card because this is what we're going to ask you to present next week. And if you're visiting with us today, just tune out for a few minutes. I'm going to talk to the congregation here. Um, so that you will not come next Sunday and say, nobody told me about this. Nobody told me about the commitment card. Nobody, I don't know what's going on. Pull that commitment card out of your program right now. I just want to walk you through a couple things really quickly. We, we, we talked about this last week, but I want, don't want anybody to slip through the cracks or not know what's going on. Um, let me just back up for a moment and say that the Vision Next is a three-year generosity initiative. It's uh, for the for the sake of first of all molding our hearts to the heart of God uh, for our community and for this church and the future of this church, um, it's a, a three year initiative that that we hope will put us in a position to purchase either land or a building uh, as a permanent home for Life Point Church. We've been here uh, meeting in uh, the high school here for a little over well for over eight years. Going on nine years, let's see, it'll be nine in June, I guess, that we've been in this building. Uh, we've been in existence as a church for about 10 years. We were over at what is now Aspire Middle School when we first started. Uh, so we, uh, we've been renting here for a while, and we're looking towards a permanent home for our church. And uh, at, uh, on the inside of your commitment folder, if you just open that up, uh, it says how to make your commitment. And I just want you to know it's coming because next Sunday we're asking you to bring these and make your commitment. So I want, to begin, want you to be sure to begin with prayer. I can't say this enough that we want you to begin with prayer. It says ask God what he wants to do in and through you, what he wants to do in and through you and your family. Consecrate yourself to him. And we've, we've been using that word consecrate a lot, and it's shown up in a, a couple of scriptures we've been in together lately as a congregation. Uh, you might remember that when Joshua and the Israelites were standing on the east side of the Jordan River, Joshua said to them, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And that, that whole process of consecration is setting yourself apart for God, of of releasing yourself to him for his purposes. So Begin with prayer. Ask God what he wants you to do. Number two, before making your commitment, ask God to show you what he would have you give. That's redundant, isn't it? But we want you to do that. Because if you uh, if you call and ask Pastor Jim, I'll just say liquidate all your assets and send them all in. We'll, we'll just take it all. Uh, God will be much more reasonable. So listen attentively for his voice. And then what's going to happen when you do that if you listen to God is that you're going to feel freedom as you give, and you're going to feel joy as you give, um, as uh, you know that what you are giving is pleasing to him. We can't all give the same amount financially. That's just a reality. Uh, but each of us can take a sacrificial next step of investment in what God wants to do through LifePoint Church in all the years ahead. Number three, record your financial commitment on the back of this brochure and keep it for your own record. So if you'll flip over to the back side of, of this folder, this brochure, I just want to touch on a couple of things so that you'll be ready next Sunday. 
At the top, there's a box to check, having prayerfully listened for the Spirit's leadership. I am, by faith, committing to God and to the leadership of LifePoint Church to give to Vision Next over and above my regular giving in order to glorify the name of Jesus Christ in Thurston County and beyond. So a couple of things. First of all, this is over and above giving. Okay, This is over and above what you normally give to LifePoint. Don't rob Peter to pay Paul. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, Keep giving what you normally give. Your, your gift of vision and next is over and above that. Um, and the purpose of this is to glorify God, to lift up the name of Jesus. That's the end result of this. We're not about just building a big building to be a mega church or to have a, the prettiest building in the world. It's just not our goal. Our goal is to expand our ministry in this community, and I hope that you'll, you'll really understand that and that, that that is our heart. So on that first blank, it says, my total, envision, total investment in Vision Next over three years, it's a three-year commitment, will be. And so we want you to think about what's that total going to be at the end of three years? How much will, will you anticipate having given? And you can give that weekly. You can give that you know monthly, quarterly, however you want to do that. Um, but we'd like to know what that was going to be. And it wouldn't, wouldn't hurt to help us know you know, the, whether you're doing that weekly or monthly or quarterly, that, that would be helpful to us. But what's that, what's that total going to be at the end of three years? And then secondly, my initial one-time first fruits offering will be. What's that? What's a first fruits offering? Well, in the Old Testament, first fruits offering was the first of your produce, right? The first of your increase, first of your profit. And uh, we're, we're using that term for kind of front-loading um, our giving to Vision Next. And why are we doing that? Well, it's possible that uh, somewhere during the three years, if we had enough cash in the bank at some point and, something, and, a, and an opportunity arose, that we might be able to move on something earlier than three years. And so that's not a requirement. We're just asking. Some of you may want to take, you've got, a, a, you've got something. You've got cash. You've got a non-cash gift that, that you might want to front load. And we'd just like to know, uh, if if you'll p- be planning to do that. Several people have already done that, and um, so we hope that you might consider that. And then third, it says, I intend to give an other-than-cash gift. And uh, we, through uh, an organization called the National Christian Foundation, are able to take um, other-than-cash gifts, cars. I'm serious about this now. By the way, I want to apologize. Last week, I, I, I made a joke. Some of you were offended by it, and, I'm, and I apologize sincerely. I made a joke saying, if you have a, a, a nice yacht or a house in Cannon Beach, you can just give it to me, and I'll use it for ministry, I promise. And it, it wasn't taken well by some people, so I, I apologize for that. Um, my sense of humor gets me in trouble. My lousy sense of humor gets me in trouble a lot. Um, <laughs> but we have... Uh, established a relationship with an organization called the National Christian Foundation that helps churches like us do what we're trying to do, specifically with other-than-cash gifts or with matching funds. And so if you have an other-than-cash gift, for example, you have a piece of real estate and you'd say, I'm just, I'd like to just give that to the church, or you have a, a boat, you have a car, you have stocks, you have 
bonds, and you'd say, I, I, I want to use those for God's purposes, and I'm going to give them to, to LifePoint for Vision Next, that money will be channeled through the National Christian Foundation because they can take those kinds of things and, and make it more tax advantageous to you to give through them than if you sold it yourself on the on the open market. And uh, I don't fully understand all of that. A couple of our elders do, which is good. Um, but you can do that. And then if you'll let us know the date on which you intend to give that gift, that would be helpful. Maybe you don't know, but if you do, that would be helpful to us. And then finally at the bottom there, it says, I will contact my employer's HR department regarding matching my contributions to Vision Next. And some of you work for employers that, that will do matching funds. So in other words, you, you take a check that you've written out to a charity, you take it to your employer, to the HR department, you say, will you match this? And they'll say, sure, we'll do that. But if, you, if it says your check says to LifePoint Church, they'll look at it and they'll go, no, we can't do that because that's to a church. And so again, through the National Christian Foundation, your employer can give to the National Christian Foundation on behalf of Vision Next into that account, and and uh, that is a, a doable thing uh, for your employer because of uh, the nature of uh, their um, their status. So next Sunday, we invite you to. So first of all, you're going to put that on the back of the brochure, and then you're going to add that same information to this insert that's on the inside of that. And this is what we're asking you to bring next Sunday. I want, you, I want to let you know that the leadership of our church met last night um, over dinner, and the, the, the total uh, of the pledges thus far from our leadership uh, is $193,015, and that's a great start. It's a great start. So uh, we'll see what God does here over these next years. And I just want to, again, encourage you to, to pray and ask God uh, what he would have you do. Well, I want to address this morning what may be a common source of anxiety for some, if not many of us, as we approach Vision Next. The fear that if we give generously and sacrificially, as uh, Pastor Jim seems to be asking you to do, consider doing, uh, then, then we won't have enough left over for ourselves, uh, for our families. Uh, you might have a vacation you were planning to take, other leisure time activities that you like to engage in, or uh, you may be worried about having enough for personal goals that may have a substantial price tag attached. Perhaps uh, you're trying to buy a home, or uh, you're going to remodel, or you're looking towards retirement. I want you, want you to know that if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. All of us feel that way when we give, and especially if we're giving sacrificially, if we're giving generously, and I'm with you. I have those same feelings, and, and I'm sure others are within this congregation. They're very real concerns, and here's the reality is that we are trying to grow up, you and I, spiritually in a cultural environment that's all about the accumulation of money and stuff. Uh, we are led to believe in many ways that the one who dies with the most toys wins. That if you don't have that particular set of cabinets in your kitchen or that, that particular countertop or you don't have, you know, the, the, the car that's getting the best whatever these days, 
that somehow you're deficient. This morning I noticed a tweet from Timothy Keller that that included this brief on-target definition of worship. It's very brief. I'll repeat it again after I've stated it here, but here's what he says. He says, if I have that, just fill in the blanks. If I have that, my life will have meaning. I will have value and feel significant and secure. And his next line is this. That is the object of your worship. If I have that, my life will have meaning. I will have value and feel significant and secure. That is the object of your worship. See, every one of us wants to live a life that that has meaning and value and significance. That's true of all of us. The problem with the fourth factor that he lists, that, that factor of security, is that we naively think that we'll find it in money and possessions. So that becomes the true object of our worship, and we're shown to be idolaters. See, all of that can be taken away in a flash. It, it can just be gone. And what I hope that you'll hear and that you'll take to heart this morning and be encouraged by is that your heavenly Father loves you. Your heavenly Father loves you. And he knows all about your wants. And he knows all about your needs. And he knows all about your fears. And he holds your future securely in his hands. You can trust him. Jesus assured us of that when he gave this instruction and promise to his disciples that's recorded in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Do not be anxious. Not a good word for the 21st century. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't know God, seek after all these things And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, all these things, all these things will be added to you. Your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need. He loves you. Seek him and his promises. If you seek me, seek my kingdom, seek my righteousness, I'm going to take care of you. You will be cared for. Trust me in that, he says. There's a public speaker asked his audience to close their eyes and imagine... Peace, simple instruction. And after a few seconds, the audience was invited to share their personal mental images of peace. One person described a field with flowers and beautiful trees. Uh, Another person spoke of snow-capped mountains and an incredible alpine landscape. And another described the scene of a beautiful, calm lake. 
And after everyone had in the audience had been given opportunity to, to briefly describe their personal mental image of peace, there came a realization among them that, that they all had one thing in common. There were no people in those images. <laughs> the speaker then commented, isn't it interesting that when asked to imagine peace, the first thing we do is to eliminate everyone else. Isn't that good? I love that. See, if you have a people-intensive occupation or you otherwise live a people-intensive life, there do come times when finding inner peace and restoration requires that you remove yourself from people for a time. The ultimate validation of that truth is seen in the fact that even Jesus felt a need to get away from people and find solitude and rest from time to time. That's where Jesus and the 12 are found as we come to the story that they, that I want us to consider together this morning. I'm not going to read this passage out loud. It's a familiar story to you, but I'm going to get to tell the story as we go. But it can be found in all four Gospels, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. And if you're taking notes this morning, it's already on your notes form. So here's the scenario, then this is where it begins, that Jesus and the 12 were weary from people-intensive ministry. Mark commented in his gospel that so many people were coming and going that Jesus and the 12 didn't even have time to eat. So they were tired physically. I imagine they were tired mentally and spiritually as well. Uh, They were also grieving together because they had just received the horrifying news that John the Baptist had been beheaded at King Herod's command. So it was timely that they just take a break, go to a remote place where they could enjoy a time of solitude and rest away from the crowds. And they got in a boat and they crossed over the Sea of Galilee to a promising location, a remote place called, near a place called Bethsaida. But the crowds were always following Jesus, and by now the crowds had grown, but this place in his ministry, the crowds were enormous. And some people from among those crowds saw them get in the boat, And they got out their cell phones and they said, they're going. And it looks like they're headed towards Bethsaida. And so it says that people ran by foot to where they thought Jesus was headed. So that as Jesus and the disciples in an attempt to escape the crowds got in that boat and crossed over the lake, they arrived to find crowds. And yet in spite of the intrusion, in spite of the disruption of of plans, here's what all four gospel writers say. Jesus responded to the people not with frustration, but with compassion. He didn't say, guys, it's my day off, and I'm whooped. (laughs) So come back tomorrow. That is not at all what Jesus said. It says that, 
He responded to them with compassion. Mark, here's Mark's observation that, that Jesus felt compassion for a specific reason, which was that he saw that the people that were coming to him were like sheep without a shepherd. I grew up on a little sheep farm. Occasionally, I had to watch our sheep as a kid because we would take them out of the fenced, our fenced acreage, and not acreage, but pasture, and, and take it into the neighbor's actual acreage. And, and they weren't running any animals on theirs. And the sheep kept the grass down, so they were happy to have us out there, have, have the sheep out there. But I, I was the one that got to watch them, and I, I was a kid, right? So, um, you know, I, I, my mind went all kinds of places except for sheep you know, and, and I was playing and, and occasionally, actually quite occasionally, I'd look up and find one of my sheep in a blackberry bramble or with their head stuck through a fence without, and not be able to get it out of that fence. And sheep are like that without a shepherd. They get themselves in trouble. They just go from tuft to tuft to tuft. A comparison of these four gospel accounts reveals that Jesus spent a great deal of time that day doing two things, healing those who needed to be healed and teaching them many things about the kingdom of God, healing and teaching, healing and teaching. And as he did that, the day wore on, Evening approached, and the disciples came to Jesus and encouraged him to send the people away so that they could go out to the local villages to Burger King and Taco Bell and McDonald's and Wendy's and Dairy Queen and get some food. And they were stunned at Jesus' reply. He said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now understand the size of the crowd. We refer to this day in Jesus' life and ministry as the feeding of the 5,000. But understand this, that in those days, they only counted the men. They only counted the heads of families. 5,000 men. Matthew had the consideration of of putting it this way, that there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So do the math. There could potentially have been upwards of 25,000 people there that day. Most biblical scholars believe that this was the largest group of people that Jesus ever ministered to at any one time. And John offers this inside information that Jesus was testing his disciples because he already had in his mind what he was going to do. But that unexpected directive, that confrontational directive, left the disciples, the 12 disciples, in a muddle, feeling confused, feeling powerless, feeling overwhelmed. I would love to have been there and just seen the look on their face. And here's what one of them responded. Well, Jesus, that would cost over 200 denarii, which in those days added up to more than half a year's wages. 
So seeing their perplexity, Jesus asked the disciples this key question. What do you have? (laughs) What do you have? What you got? How many loaves do you have? And in my mind's eye, I imagine the disciples, because they they didn't have anything. They hadn't hadn't brought lunch. They hadn't brought dinner. They weren't expecting what, what happened. I imagine them going through the crowd, asking who among them had brought any food with them that they might be willing to share. <laughs> and the results were not encouraging. All they found was one boy who had stopped at Skipper's on the way and ordered the two-piece with five biscuits. Something else truly remarkable was that the hour was quite late and this kid hadn't, still hadn't eaten his lunch. So check this out. At the moment of need, and the need was great, at the moment of need, the wealthiest person in the crowd was a kid with a sack lunch. And the disciples reported to Jesus, well, we, we found a boy with only five barley loaves and two small fish. How far is that going to go among so many hungry people? Jesus said, bring them here to me. Now, part of this story that that none of the disciples tell is how it was that they separated the kid from his lunch. I'm not sure how that happened, you know. I'm really not sure. Twelve large men standing over him, I imagine. (laughs) But let's not miss this point, that that little boy gave all that he had. He gave all that he had. And he surrendered it. He relinquished it to Jesus. And when they brought the food to Jesus, he directed the people. He said, everybody sit down in the grass. And he took uh, the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks. And in probably a prayer that sounded something like this, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. All things were created by your word. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to to the disciples to distribute among the people. You imagine Peter, right? He's got got a chunk of bread and he goes over and he goes, here you go, just take take a little tiny piece, okay? Because there's not much here. Just take a little piece. That's what he's saying. So they did that with the bread, and then they did that with the fish. And, and, and Jesus, here's what Jesus did. He took that two-piece fish order and turned it into an all-you-can-eat for 225,000, I'm sorry, 25,000 people. And John says this, that they all ate as much as they wanted. They all ate and were satisfied. And John concludes his account of this event by saying, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this 
is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the one that we've been told about since childhood, that our parents told us about, our grandparents told us about, all those old people in the synagogue told us about, that we read about in the prophets. This is the guy. He's here. And then Jesus instructed the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And the disciples gathered up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of barley loaves and fish. 12 baskets from one little lunch. Well, why gather up the leftovers? I don't know. (laughs) Because Jesus never wastes a miracle? See, I imagine that most of that leftover food might have gone home with the boy who had in obedience and faith given his lunch. And with him went a story that he probably never stopped telling for the rest of his life to his family and to his friends, to his children, to his synagogue, anyone who would listen. That was the story that he kept telling of having given his lunch to Jesus, who then used it to serve 25,000 people. It's amazing. Well, why 12 baskets? It says there were 12. Why 12 baskets? I, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe it was so that each of the 12 disciples could have a special doggy bag of his own. I don't, I don't know. What initiated the entire adventure and the reason that, that we know this story today, the reason that it, it kept being retold is the compassion of Christ for hungry, needy people who were like sheep without a shepherd, who, who were like your neighbors and my neighbors, your co-workers. Each account of the feeding of the 5,000 in each of the four Gospels begins with a statement about the compassion of Jesus for the people in the crowd that had gathered, many of whom needed healing. And maybe they were, as we read in other stories of healing, maybe they were deaf or maybe they were blind or maybe they were lame or maybe they had leprosy. Who knows what was going on? Jesus healed them all. All of them needed the truth, and so he taught them all. All of them needed to understand that the kingdom of God had arrived in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that God had not forgotten his promises to Israel, that he was the one who had been promised by the prophets. See, what the disciples apparently needed was a demonstration of his power in the place of their powerlessness, his power in the place of their powerlessness. When he said to them, these people don't need to be sent away, you feed them. They had no idea of what to even think or say or do. They were powerless. They also needed an experience of his provision in exchange for their poverty his provision in exchange for their poverty. They they were presented a task for which their only point of reference was a human solution. All they could think of was the price. How would they scrape together that kind of cash and purchase that much food before sundown? Impossible. Unthinkable. 
the local pizza hut couldn't even prepare that many pizzas in time before sundown. What the people needed was what they got, a powerful glimpse of his person, who he, Jesus, really is. So let's review and just kind of take a closer look as we do. Let's bring it closer to home. The the disciples brought what they had, or more precisely what the little boy had, to Jesus. In spite of how small that seemed to be in comparison to the enormity of the need or how little sense it really made to them. And you may feel that way personally. You may either feel that what you have to offer to Jesus through Vision Next is too small to make a difference or that the goal is far too large to even achieve. And Jesus would say to you, what do you have? What do you have? Bring it to me and just watch what I will do. And then they released the little boy. No, they didn't release the little boy. They released the little they had. The contacts are blurry this morning. They released the little that they had into the master's hands. And now listen, and awaited further instructions. They released the little they had into the master's hands and awaited further instructions. Seemingly so simple, really. And yet so hard, isn't it? Hard to trust, hard to let go, hard to wait. And did you notice that Jesus never told them what he was going to do? He knew what he was going to do. He never told them. He just said, bring it to me. Bring what you have to me. And there's great freedom in simply giving to God what he asks us to give and leaving the outcome to him without trying to dictate or manipulate the outcome in any way. Now watch what Jesus did. Jesus blessed what they gave him. He gave thanks to God for it, and then he put it back into their hands to feed the people. You see that sequence? He blessed it. They put it in his hands. He blessed it. He gave thanks for it, and then he put it back into their hands to feed the people. You see, as strange and perhaps heretical as it may sound coming out of my mouth, the miracle did not take place in Jesus' hands. Although it began there, the miracle took place in the disciples' hands. You see that? When they did with the fish and the loaves what the master told them, to do. We should just kind of live in that thought for a little while. The miracle took place in their hands as Jesus gave it back to them to do what he told them to do. And I think God wants you and me to learn to let go of what we think we own, what we think we need, 
to relinquish our rights to it, place it in his hands and let go so that he can bless it and give it back to us to use for his purposes. What that little boy released to Jesus was multiplied exponentially to serve others for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then, and then, multiplied exponentially back to him. See, in the whole of the Bible, there are over 2,500 verses that address money and possessions. Over 15% of everything Jesus ever taught dealt with money and possessions, more than all of his teaching on heaven and hell combined. And the dominant theme in his teachings is not primarily, listen to me now, the dominant theme in Jesus' teachings is not primarily about what God wants from you, but instead what God wants for you. Not what he wants from you, but what he wants for you. Things like peace and freedom and blessing. The Apostle Paul captured this in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 where he wrote, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give, listen now, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. One more story and then I'm going to close. The Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, there is the story of a, a young, recently widowed woman with two sons and a load of debt. Any of you ever been there? Her husband had been the son of a prophet but now the money that had been left to her had been spent and she couldn't pay her bills and her debt had risen to the point that the creditor was threatening to take her two sons as slaves. She was beside herself, understandably. And she sought out the man of God. She sought out Elisha the prophet and pled her case. And Elisha answered her with nearly the same question that Jesus asked the 12 disciples that day of, at Bethsaida. He said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And here was her answer. All that was left in the house that was of any value at all was a flask of oil. In your versions of the Bible, it may say jar. The Hebrew word there is pretty specific. It means a flask of oil. Verse 
Elisha's prescription was as unpredictable as was Jesus' prescription at the feeding of the 5,000 several hundred years later. Elisha the prophet said, go to all of your neighbors and borrow as many jars as you can possibly borrow. You're going to need a lot of jars. Then go into your house with your two sons, close the door, and take your little flask of oil and begin pouring into those jars. And when one fills up, set it aside, and you can almost see her in your mind's eye, her eyes getting larger. (laughs) What? What did you just say? Oh, I said, take that flask and, and begin pouring into those jars, and when one fills up, set it aside. Do you need me to repeat that again? So she did what Elisha told her to do. She poured and the boys brought the jars to her and when each jar was full, they would set that one aside and she would move on to the next jar and keep pouring and 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 pouring. And when the last jar was full to the top, she said to her son, bring me another jar. And he said, that was the last jar, mom. That's it. And it was then that the oil stopped flowing from her flask. And she went back to Elisha, the man of God, and told him what had happened. And he said to her, go and sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the remainder of your profits. Now, here's what had happened. She had spent raising her boys, everything that her husband had left to her. The money was gone. There's no indication here that she'd been irresponsible with the money. It was just spent. It was gone. And her debts were stacking up. And Elisha says, go and sell your oil and pay your debts. And so all of a sudden, she's debt-free, and she's in Dave Ramsey's lobby screaming, freedom! But that wasn't all. Because the clear implication of, of the language here when, when Elisha said that you and your boys can live on the rest, that was you'll, you'll be able to live on the rest for the rest of your lives. On this occasion, Elisha did not stage a show for the community. He, he clearly instructed the, the woman fulfill his directive behind closed doors. The miracle took place behind closed doors. The need was a private, personal need. The miracle was a private and personal one as well, but it had enormous social implications for this woman and her family because no longer was the creditor knocking on her door every day, putting, taping pink slips to her door. This house condemned it. None of that was happening anymore. No more harassment in the neighborhood. Her boys were dressing better. She was able to do business. They were able to eat. 
But Elisha did something else that was echoed later in Jesus' actions. He, he left her to act in faith. The miracle happened while the flask was in her hands. Her faith and the faith of her sons must have grown several sizes that day. And I imagine in all the days that followed, Elisha's physical absence at the time that the miracle took place would have allowed the power of God to be displayed without it getting confused with the prophet himself. This was God. This wasn't a magic man. She wouldn't be tempted to put her faith in Elisha, but instead that she would be led to even greater faith in God. And imagine the astonishment of her creditor when she paid off her debt and moved into a new chapter of financial stability and freedom and even prosperity. In Genesis 22, Abraham gave to God the name Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord your God sees and provides. And what I want you to know this morning is that wherever you are today in your journey to obedient financial stewardship, know that the Lord sees you and he sees your need and he sees your want and he sees your anxieties and he is ready to bless you when you are ready to place your money and your stuff in his hands and steward it his way. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a great British preacher of the 19th century. And he once said that man's extremity becomes God's opportunity. Man's extremity becomes God's opportunity. Among other things, that means that your worst day, your worst circumstance, those moments and days when your darkest fears are realized can become God's best days of opportunity because you are out of the way and he can show you his love and he can show you his power. Knowing with confidence that God is our provider enables each of us to overcome the fear of living and giving generously. There are so many great promises in God's word to that effect. For example, to the believers in Corinthians or in Corinth, Paul wrote, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Listen to the infinitives here. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. To the believers at Philippi, he wrote, my God will supply every need of yours. It's a promise. My God will supply every need of yours according to, in, in equivalence with, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen.
You know, there's a, a song that's been kind of running around in my head for the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing for today's message. It's, it's an older song. It's from the early 90s. It's always been one of my favorite songs. It was written by Mom Winans of the famous Winans musical family and recorded by Danny Bell Hall. It's titled Ordinary People, and the chorus goes like this. Some of you might remember it. Just ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. He chooses people just like you and me who are willing to do as he commands. God uses people that will give him all, no matter how small your all may seem to you. Because little becomes much as you place it in the master's hand. Will you do that? And I'm not just talking about vision next now. I'm talking about your stewardship. Will you do that? Will will you take what is in your hands and in simple childlike trusting faith release it into his and await further instructions? so that he can bless it and so that he can multiply it back to you and multiply it back through you so that people around you will be led, that that they'll be fed, that they'll see Jesus for who he is as their savior, as their provider, as their master, as the promised one and be lovingly and powerfully drawn into his kingdom. Little becomes much as you place it in the master's hand. Let's pray together. Lord, we read your word. We we hear your promises. They make sense to us. And our tendency is to say, well, that happens to other people. That happens in other people's lives, not mine. But Lord, we're reminded that the 12 disciples were men just like us. They had families and they had children, they had wives, they had financial responsibilities, had businesses. And yet you used them in powerful ways. We're just like that little boy. Provisioned with a little a little bet. And yet you used what he had to impact thousands. God, will you teach us these things? Will you will you bring them home to our hearts? And let us reflect on this truth that little becomes much as we place it in the master's hand. Amen.